Strange Brew Podcast Season 1, Episode 69. Nice. Brewers in Cincy. It's a group of ragtags. They're on their fourth and fifth string, but they're getting it done. Three wins against the Reds, going for the four-game sweep today with Julio Tehran on the hill. We'll talk about that. The Bucks still have not had any official word on Adrian Griffin becoming the next head coach in franchise history, but they did update the website. Is that enough? And it does sound like a lead assistant is already signed for Adrian Griffin, an old name that had Bucks fans nostalgic on Twitter over the weekend. Stats and stats, anybody? Game two of the NBA Finals. The Heat can't keep getting away with this. Chapter four, verse 262. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Wisconsin, record-breaking run! Morgan a smash up the middle, base hit the center! Snap. He looks, he throws, it's incomplete. And there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in, backed away, and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul, and a tentacle foul, throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there. We've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, we'll start with the Brew Crew over the weekend. What a weekend in Cincinnati. I had to laugh. Our buddy Matthew J. he's our afternoon host on B93. He was in Cincy for the Zach Brown Band show, which was coming on after the Brewers and Reds on Friday. That's why the Brewers and Reds had a weird start time on Friday, a 4:10 start time, because they were doing an ALS fundraiser. One of the band members for Zach Brown Band has ALS, was diagnosed with it about a year ago, and they had a big show because of it. They were doing a big fundraiser that day, and him and his wife, they love Zach Brown Band. Whatever your artist is, who's your favorite musician? Whatever that artist is, and you would travel anywhere to see them, that Zach Brown band for them. And he's a Brewer fan, but not as big a Brewer fan as a Zach Brown band fan. They made the trip to Cincinnati. They drove the whatever it is, six hours. It's actually pretty reasonable in terms of a drive. My wife and I did it two years ago in spring of 2021. And it is, it's a nice park. It's actually a pretty nice little city, Cincinnati. Skyline Chili is the absolute worst. That's their thing. If that's their food thing, if you come to Sheboygan, you've got to have a double brat on a Sheboygan hard roll. Every city has their thing. Skyline Chili is Cincinnati's thing, and it tastes like they scooped it out of the trash can. It's so bad. You have to try it. I was talking to Matt about it before he left, and he texted me and said, you said this stuff was disgusting, right? And I said, yeah, but if you're there, you've got to try it. When in Rome. And it is bad. It's a sweet chili if you've never had it. It has kind of some cinnamon flavor to it. I don't know how to describe it other than that it makes you want to throw up in your mouth just a little bit, just a little puke in the back of the mouth. But they have it on noodles, on egg noodles, and or hot dogs. I did try both versions. I think we actually threw the noodle version away after a couple of bites. It's better on hot dogs. Everything is. I've always said that. That's part of my gospel. Everything's better on hot dogs. It was. It was actually much better on hot dogs. But even being better on hot dogs, it was still a 2 out of 10. It went from a 0 out of 10 to a 1 out of 10 or a 2 out of 10. 
So I'll have to touch base with him when he comes in this morning. I don't know if he tried it or not. But he was sitting there on Friday, and I had to laugh. It looked so hot, and it was. I texted him. I said, it looks hotter than the surface of the sun on TV. He said, yeah, it's 94 degrees. We're sitting in the sun. And then the game was tied late, and I texted him again. He said, somebody better score a run here. <laughs> We're sitting here waiting for this show, and there's going to be a break after the game before the show starts. Somebody better score a run here. I said, don't worry about it. Brewers score two runs this inning. No runs. Text him again. They're going to score a run this inning. For sure, meat of the order. A run's coming up this inning. Nobody scores a run. Goes into extra innings. The game lasts over three hours. In an age now where games are two and a half, 220, two and a half, 240, 245 on the high side in the pitch clock era. Of course, he had to be sitting there in the sun, in sun seats, 95 degrees with humidity in Cincinnati for one of the longest games of the year. Goes to 11 innings, and they get the win. And then Zach Brown Band took the stage after that, but I had to laugh. I just thought that was kind of a funny coincidence that they drove all the way down there or over there to go see the Zach Brown Band show after a Brewer game, and then they end up having to endure in the insufferable Cincinnati Heat, one of the longest games of the year. But the Brewers get it done, and an escape act. After you don't score as the road team in the top of the 10th inning, you think the game is pretty much a wrap when the other team has their ghost runner on second base with nobody out. But Elvis Piguero got out of that jam. They end up putting a couple of runs on the board in the 12th inning. Bryce Wilson gave up the ghost runner, but that was it in a 5-4 win on Friday. Then they had to hang on on Saturday. My wife and I were doing yard work, had the game on the radio in the backyard, but it got to be, what, 9-1, 10-2, or 10-3 in the 4th or 5th inning? You think that's over, and before you know it, You've got a two-run game with the bases loaded and only one out in the ninth inning. Devin Williams works his way out of that for another win. And then we got odd-year Adrian yesterday. He is a delight to watch. When he is on, I guess I forgot because it's been a couple years since 2021, and he was not very good last year. But when he is locked in and he is spotting his pitches in the zone and getting ground balls two or three pitches into an at-bat, it's already a faster game now with the pitch clock. But he was one of those guys who didn't even need that. There are certain pitchers who are really struggling with the pitch clock because taking their step off the rubber and walking around and looking up into space and rubbing the baseball and checking the run at first, that was a part of their success. That's a part of their game. Adrian was always pretty quick to get the ball out. But when you match that with his style, which is, as we said on Friday's podcast with Julio Tehran, very democratic. He wants the ground balls. He wants to put the ball in play, trust his defense, and get those quick outs. And he was able to do that when he is locked. Locked in. It's a joy to watch an Adrian Hauser game. We have just not seen it a ton. This year we have. Last year we didn't much at all. But when he is putting pitches where he wants to and he's getting that contact and getting the early outs, that game just zips along. Seven innings of one run ball from odd year Adrian yesterday. Bullpen got it shut down. And again on Sunday, it was one of these guys that you think, who are these guys? I felt like that scene in Major League all weekend long where they're talking about who the hell are these guys? I never heard of most of them. Mitchell Friedman? <laughs> who are these guys? That's how I felt the entirety of the weekend. We've talked about the depth of this team being tested because of this avalanche of injuries they've had to deal with. But you've got to tip your cap to some of these guys who are stepping up. Andrew Monasterio, who (laughs) hits a three-run home run on Sunday. And then, of course, two innings later, as they try to pick a runner off at second base, he gets the throw from Hauser. He dives into the bag at second base and gets hit in the face, gets his sunglasses or his glasses knocked off. He's bleeding in his nose. He had to leave the game. They said it was precautionary, but that is just a synopsis of this whole year. That's a snapshot of the Brewer year where you get this random guy does something great, and two innings later, he's hurt. 
but him and Abraham Toro, Blake Perkins had that grand slam in a two-hit five RBI game on Saturday. These guys, who are these guys that they're getting it done? John Singleton, what a story that was. He was called up. Was he called up on Saturday? I think if you follow Adam McCalvey, the Brewer Beat reporter on Twitter, they were talking about John Singleton and what a weird path he's had back to Major League Baseball where he was one of the top prospects in baseball with the Houston Astros. And they gave him a five-year, $10 million deal before he even played one game in Major League Baseball. You hear a lot, and we will soon. I think the draft is either this week or next week. It's at some point this month. You hear about these massive signing bonuses, first round and second round players get in the draft where they're picking up five or six million dollars just for signing their name and then they get paid that minor league money until they make it to the major leagues but that's where most of the high-ranked prospects make their money you never really hear of a five-year ten million dollar deal before a player even plays one inning of major league baseball that shows you how highly regarded john singleton was and he came up and had a cup of coffee and then he battled some drug issues, marijuana issues, then he was down, then he was up, then he was down, he was batting under 200 and again drug issues caught up with him, then he was out of baseball for a while and then finally cycled his way back into the minor leagues, got locked in with the Brewers, I think it was last year in the minor league system and because of all the injuries, he's had a pretty decent year at the minor league level at an over 800 OPS. He finally gets called up on Saturday and plays two games, Saturday and Sunday. His batting stance if you watch tonight, if he's playing, and I'm rooting for him. This the story is so improbable for him to be back in baseball. It's just one of those guys that you pull for. But when he had his first at-bat on Saturday, the way he looks, he's a first baseman by trade, bigger guy. He's got the beard. He looks like, and if they made it, now not to gross you out, speaking of Skyline Chili, if they made it, remember Conan used to do that segment, of Prince Fielder, and Eric Thames. He's got the Thames beard. He's got the Prince gut. Is it okay to say that? I'm not shaming anybody here. I've got one myself. But he's got the Prince guy. He's a bigger guy. And the batting stance. He is squat like Prince with the shorter bat. He just he looks like Roundy's brand Prince Fielder up there with the way that he squats with his leg bend, with where he holds the bat, and the face with the beard looks like Eric Thames. I hope he gets more at-bats and he produces. That would be quite a story if he becomes a fixture in the lineup or a fixture on the team going forward. But all of these random dudes just getting it done in Cincinnati over the weekend. The Brewers win three in a row. They are 32-27 and 27 overall now. The other subplot this weekend, we talked about this on Friday. You had the Cardinals and the Pirates matching up in Pittsburgh. And I said on Friday, I'm not sure who we want to win that. Traditionally speaking... If you're rooting for the team in first place and there's a team in second place a half game behind you, which is where we are today and where we were on Friday, in a traditional sense, you would think, yeah, you want the second place team to lose. Of course, you want more distance between yourself and the team that is directly on your heels. You see them in the rear view mirror. Pirates are closer than they appear. You want that team to lose. But my contention on Friday was just based on the way the history has gone and I just still don't believe in the Pirates. I don't know if the Pirates, like I said on Friday, if the Pirates are there and I have to eat these words in August or September and they end up staying hot and they somehow catch the Brewers and they win the division, then I'll put my hand up. I'll be the first person to put my hand up and say I was wrong. But based on their roster construction, they're still so young. They've got so many holes. They're kind of plugging with players that are playing way over their skis like the Brewers are to some extent with the depth. But 
I'm just not worried about them until we get to a point in the season where you have to be worried when you get to where there's 30 or 40 games left. And if they're right there, then then I'll be worried about them. My feeling on Friday and still is today is that you want as much distance between the Brewers and the Cardinals as humanly possible. You want them buried so deep that you don't have to. You'll always be worried about them to some extent in August or September. They could be 20 games under 500, and you could have a 16-game lead on them in the division, and I would still be a little worried. But I want them buried as far down as they can go by the time you get to the stretch run. And the Pirates sweeping the Cardinals puts the Cardinals back in last place and seven and a half games back of the Brewers in first place. I feel better about that. You know what I mean? That trade, I feel better about that than if the reverse happened and the Cardinals were three or four games back, but now the Pirates were two or three games back and you had more space. I just feel better about that outcome coming out of the weekend. But the Brewers sit at 32-27. and 27. They go for the sweep tonight. It's a newcomer, a top pitching prospect, making his major league debut for the Reds. If you follow the Brewers over the years, you know not even just a top pitching prospect. Any player, any pitcher that is making their major league debut, it generally does not go well for the Brewers. We'll see if Julio Tehran can give them the third straight spectacular start. It is his third start in a Brewer jersey. Two starts, 11 and a third, only one earned run given up. We'll see if he can get it done again tonight. A 6-10 first pitch going for that four-game sweep against the Reds. And then you've got Baltimore, who we talked about on Friday. Kind of a surprise. They were sort of there at the end of last year, hovering around 500. Thought they'd take at least a step this year, but they've taken two or three. They have the, I think, third best record in baseball. Second place in the AL East behind the best record in baseball, the Tampa Bay Rays. But they'll be in town on Tuesday. There was good injury news from McAlvey over the weekend, too. Luis Arias will be joining the team on Tuesday when the Orioles are in town. So he will be in the lineup for the homestand starting on Tuesday. Woodruff, we know, is a little behind where he was supposed to be. The good news on Sunday was Wade Miley is ahead of where he's expected to be. Initially, they thought he'd be out six to eight weeks. It sounds like he's only going to be out four-ish weeks, which is a major upgrade. Eric Lauer is starting his rehab starts on Tuesday, I want to say, or Wednesday in Nashville. He's getting a little bit closer. Matt Bush, who I totally forgot about, he has not been very good this year, and maybe a part of that was the injuries. He was supposed to be the setup guy for Devin Williams coming into this year. But he is starting his rehab in Nashville as well on Tuesday. It sounds like we're getting closer to seeing some of these guys who've been out for a long time coming back. But overall, with all the Cardinal losses, and yeah, that means the Pirates stay half game back, but with all the Cardinal losses and the way the Brewers have been able to win these games with all of these guys down, really encouraging weekend in Cincinnati. Hopefully they can get the four-game sweep tonight. Again, a 6-10 first pitch. Then you got Baltimore, but then you've got the worst team in baseball, the Oakland A's, who have 12 wins. What the heck are they? Hold on, let me get to the standings here. Are they 12-50? and 50? They are so, so bad. 12-49. and 49. A gentleman's 197 winning percentage. I don't think we've ever seen anything like that. What is the worst record? We're going to do this in real time. Worst MLB record all time. I would guess in the 40-ish wins. Uh, We're going way back to the 1890s. Well, if you base it on winning percentage, the A's right now are the third worst ever. The Cleveland Spiders in 1899 went 20 and 134. The Pittsburgh Alleghenies in 1890 went 23 and 113. And then based on winning percentage, the, the A's currently would be the third worst team ever. St. Louis Browns in 1897. What's the first modern era team on here? The New York Mets in 1962 went 40 and 120. Man, well, 
I guess if you're going to be bad, you may as well be full-on bad. If you're going to play poorly, then play the worst you can possibly play. All right, but the Brewers back on the field tonight in Cincy, wrapping up that four-game set again, 6-10 first pitch this evening. In the NBA, we did have a little bit of news with Adrian Griffin. Remember, we discussed on Friday, is it weird? We did a segment of, <laughs> is it weird? We could maybe make that a segment on this podcast. Is it weird? that we had a week's worth of rumors about Adrian Griffin becoming the next head coach, and other teams have had those same rumors about their head coach come out, and days later they're having an introductory press conference. Nick Nurse was the example I used in Philadelphia. Rumors were that he was going to be the guy, and think 36 hours after that he was taking hard questions from the Philadelphia media in his introductory press conference. We just have not had any official word from Bucks PR about whether or not Adrian Griffin is the head coach. They did, however, over the weekend, change the website at bucks.com. If you click on roster and click on coaches, Adrian Griffin is listed as the head coach. That feels like it's enough for me. That's like when you hear people say this could have been an email. This whole meeting could have been an email. I think that multiple times every week. This whole podcast could have been an email. This could have been an email. Maybe that's what the Bucks are doing. And if that's what they're doing, as somebody who frequently feels that all of the interactions I have at work with meetings, with sales meetings and things like that could have been an email, then tip my cap to them. Then they have listened to the general public about this could have been an email. Maybe that's the way they're going to handle it. The other big part of the weekend, Terry Stotts, it sounds like, is on his way back to Milwaukee. Terry Stotts was the lead assistant for George Carl when he was here from 98 to 2003. And he always had a segment, I mentioned it in the beginning of the episode, when it was John McLaughlin and Jim Paschke on the call for Bucks basketball on, what was it even back in the day? It wasn't FSM, Channel 18, Channel 24. What was it called? I don't even remember. But they always did a segment called Stats and Stots at the end of the game where they would go over the hustle stats, or maybe it was halftime. They would go over the hustle stats, the steals and the offensive rebounds and things like that. And then John McLaughlin would talk to Terry Stotts. It must have been halftime. And then John McLaughlin would talk to Terry Stotts about adjustments they were going to make or what they feel good about or what they don't feel good about. And it was called Stats and Stotts. I hope they bring that back. I hope Bally or whatever entity is carrying Bucks games at that point. I hope they bring that all the way back. Stats and Stotts. But Terry Stotts apparently is going to be the lead assistant. And I didn't even really realize, you go over the coaching history for the Bucks. I remember that he was, I didn't realize he was the assistant for that long. And then after George Carl, Terry Porter, Stevens Point alum, was there for two years. And then Terry Stotts. Remember, before Terry Porter was hired, it was a battle of the Terrys. Those were the two finalists before they hired Terry Porter. Terry Porter and Terry Stotts. And a lot of people felt like, because Stotts was the George Carl assistant, that he was going to be the guy. They go with Terry Porter. They spend two years on that. They made the playoffs once in those two years. That didn't work out. They fire him. And then they bring in the guy that was his number one competition that's two summers before then they say okay we'll we'll give Terry Stotts a shot and he was very similar two years they made the playoffs in his first year Andrew Bogut's rookie year they were bad the second year he's fired midseason that led to Larry Kraskowiak getting a run as a head coach for the Bucks remember coach K Larry Kraskowiak took over for Stotts at the end of that 07 year and then they just kind of randomly went on a run where they won 7 of 10 or 8 of 10, which at the time was inconceivable. They just kind of got hot. And he had this college coach enthusiasm, which is what he ended up doing and is still doing successfully, by the way. He had this college coach energy to him 
where he wasn't so laid back on the sideline. And that, combined with the winning that was happening, combined with the fact that the franchise was an absolute dumpster fire, it got the fan base enthused to the point where I remember there were T-shirts at the Bradley Center that said, we have the real Coach K. (laughs) Larry Kraskowiak. What an era that was for Bucks basketball. And then they decided to keep him on the following year because of all the momentum. And eventually we all learned that he was just not a good pro coach. And he was fired at the end of 2008, which gave way to Scott Skiles, who had Adrian Griffin as his assistant coach. Time is a flat circle. But anyway, Terry Stotts had those two years in Milwaukee. Those didn't work out. I did not realize, and I had to look it up over the weekend because of the news, I didn't realize how long and how good Portland was when he was there, at least in the regular season. He made some conference semifinals runs. They were almost always in the playoffs. But he appears to be one of those coaches or head coaches where they would win 50-plus regular season games every year but just did not see that success translate into the playoffs. But he went there. He was the head coach in Atlanta. Then he was the head coach in Milwaukee for two years. Then he went to Portland after a five-year break where he was an assistant, I believe. And then he went to Portland in 2012-2013. They had a bad year that year. Every year after that, they won 54 games in 2013. They won 51 games in 2014, 44 games in 2015, 526, 50 games in 2017, 53 wins in 2018. And then things tapered a bit, 35 and 39 the year before the pandemic, 42 and 30 the year of the pandemic. He was still head coach the year of the pandemic, 2020-2021, or that was the year coming out of the pandemic, 42 and 30, and they lost in the first round, and that was the end of his time in Portland. But all of those wins, he ends up with a 515 winning percentage as a head coach. He was sort of known for offense, which is weird because that was one of his weaknesses in Milwaukee and Atlanta in the coaching runs before that. He was kind of George Carl's lead defensive assistant. But he was able to develop offense in Portland. Dame Lillard was a big part of that. But it's an interesting add to the Adrian Griffin coaching staff with the first assistant that we've heard of, Terry Stotts, back in Milwaukee. But I just didn't realize how long. I mean, I kind of knew he was in Portland, but I didn't realize how successful regular season-wise they were there when he was winning low to mid-50s. It felt like almost every year. And they were winning the Northwest Division and top four in the Western Conference playoff race. We'll see what he brings to Adrian Griffin's coaching staff. But those two things were news over the weekend for the Bucks, where they didn't make an official announcement. They just changed the website to feature Adrian Griffin as their head coach. And then that other news of Terry Stotts reportedly, allegedly, coming in as Adrian Griffin's lead assistant. And that brings us into the NBA. The Heat can't keep getting away with this, can they? They cannot keep getting away with this. Game two of the NBA Finals after the Nuggets won fairly handily in game one. And as we said on Friday, I couldn't resist. I put money on the Nuggets. I've lost so much money to Jimmy Butler. My credit score is going down. It's not just affecting the money that I have to give to my bookie. It's actually, it's a, my credit score is down 68 points, all because of Jimmy Butler. But I bet against them. I didn't bet against them against the Knicks. That's the only hiatus I took because I did believe once that matchup was set, I did believe the Heat were the better team based on the way they played against the Bucs and then just based on what their matchup was with the Knicks. They were the better team. But I bet against them, of course, when they played the Bucs, lost my money there. I bet against them when they played the Celtics, lost my shirt there. And I was going to stay away. The plan was to stay away because how many times can you just keep on going <laughs> to the well A smarter man would have quit, but I am not that smarter man. I am not. I've learned that over my lifetime. I wish I were, but I'm not. But I just, I said to myself, I either have to bet with Jimmy or not bet at all. But then an hour before tip time in game one, I put a bet on the Nuggets to win in six games or less and a little tickler on them to win in five games or less. That one is already in dire straits. 
But the Nuggets win game one, and they shoot well from beyond the arc. They broke down that heat zone. The heat couldn't shoot with some of those role players who had not missed a shot, it felt like, in two months. They finally went cold. Caleb Martin went cold in game one. Max Struess was ice cold in game one, 0 for 10, 0 for 9 from beyond the arc. And I kind of thought, all right, this is all sort of coming around now where all of this is getting back to normal. We're seeing some regression back to the norm. And this is what it will be going forward. The Nuggets have had no problems at home this year. Let's get them out to a 2-0 lead. You steal one in Miami, wrap it up at home in Game 5. Or if you have to, you go to Game 6. But then last night, the Heat storm out to a quick lead. But the Nuggets counterpunch in the second quarter. They end up getting a double-digit lead by the third quarter. And you kind of feel like, okay, here we go. They should be able to handle this, take this to the finish line, take a 2-0 series lead. But then the voodoo magic, everybody, the black voodoo magic. It's like St. Louis Cardinal black magic. The Heat come out in the fourth quarter. Duncan Robinson, who has been good in the playoffs, but was not good last night until the fourth quarter, had not hit a shot. He scores 10 points in a row in the first three minutes of the fourth quarter. The Heat go 9 of 10 and 11 of their first 14 from the field in the fourth quarter. How? They can't keep getting away from this. And you know what the worst part was? I kind of felt myself rooting for him as the Heat were doing Heat things. It's so impressive to watch that I sort of found myself pulling for them when they would be coming back and getting in front. Is this what Stockholm Syndrome is? Somebody Google, get my producer on Stockholm Syndrome. I think that's what it is. I think I've been Stockholm syndrome But I found myself almost kind of rooting for them as they were doing it again. I thought, I cannot believe this. And Kyle Lowry's hitting threes. Then Kyle Lowry gets fouled on a three. It is amazing. The composure this Heat team has. And I know we've talked about this now for two months, but it still mystifies me how they're doing it. They have such composure in all situations. They just run their sets, and they know or they feel like if we just run our stuff, if we play focused defense, and if we just run our offense, even if we have some misses, even if we have some turnovers, or if we have a poor shooting night, we're just going to stick with our stuff. We believe in our philosophy. We believe in our scheme. We're going to stick with what we do, and in the end, it wins out. And then they start hitting shots, and then the pressure ramps up on Denver or whatever team they're playing, the Bucks or the Celtics. And we've seen it happen all playoff run long where the Heat have these runs. They go red hot, and the pressure is put on the other team to then make shots, and they can't rise to the occasion. And all of a sudden, the team that was up 10 or 11 points is down 8 or 9 points in the fourth quarter with four minutes left. And you're thinking, is this over? Did the Heat just go on this run? And are they going to win this thing? And they did. 111 to 108. The only thing that gives me solace at this point with the Heat is that Vegas doesn't agree with it either. And Vegas knows all. This is miraculous what the Heat are doing. I'd have to go back and look, and I'm sure at some point a better researched podcast will figure this out or a better researched athletic article or something. Because... If you're a listener of this podcast or any NBA podcast or if you're a Heat fan and this keeps happening, wouldn't you say logically as the listener, well, John or whatever, fill in the podcast host here or whatever author of the article it is, wouldn't you think after two months you'd finally start to understand that the Heat are a good team or that the Heat have better team chemistry or a better scheme or a better head coach? And I would say, yeah, I guess I'd think about that. But then wouldn't Vegas adjust to the Miami Heat have to be setting a record? for a playoff run in the NBA of a team outright winning games where they are 8-10 to 10 point underdogs because Vegas has not adjusted to them. And that makes me believe that we're right, <laughs> that the general public, the podcasters of the world, the bloggers of the world, 
the general public who has watched this entire run and said, that team's better than the Heat or more talented. That Celtics team is more talented than the Heat. That Bucks team is more talented than the Heat. That Nuggets team is more talented than the Heat. And you say it and say it and say it, and the Heat just keep knocking these teams off. But if the Heat truly were the better team, Vegas would have adjusted by now. We would have started to see these 8-10 to 10 point spreads becoming more 2-3 to three point spreads. They were not the favorite in any game against Boston outside of one, and I think it was game six, and they were only a point and a half favorite. That says to me that Vegas, where they build all the casinos and all the giant buildings, those don't build themselves. Those are, those are built on the backs of major gambling losses. Those are built on the backs of people betting against the wise guys. The wise guys in Vegas continue to have this Heat team as a 8-10 to 10 point underdog, and the Heat continue to not only cover, but to win those games outright. That would be an interesting tidbit to find out. If they are the team, if you picked a point spread, an eight-point underdog or a nine-point underdog, how many games has a team won in a championship run and a playoff run where they've been eight to ten-point underdogs and they've not only covered the spread but won outright? It just keeps happening. And Jimmy's not even the biggest part of it anymore. Jimmy was unconscious against the Bucks. Jimmy was Kobe. Jimmy was Jordan. Jimmy was okay against the Knicks. Jimmy was okay in spots. I know he has an ankle injury, too, against the Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals. He wasn't even their best player last night. He had 21 points. He passed well. He's clearly a bit hobbled, but it was everybody else. Gabe Vincent, all of a sudden, the guy just shoots 60% from beyond the arc like he's Steph Curry. I do not understand it. All these guys that averaged eight or nine points. I will go back to one game in the Bucks series and talk about Duncan Robinson. The one concern, and we maybe talked about this in the podcast or not, the one win the Bucks got against the Heat in game two. Remember, they were up by like 30 points. And the fourth quarter, the Heat actually made it kind of interesting with about two minutes left where they got it down to 10 or 11 points, and he started to get a little queasy. And maybe even the starters had to come back in to finish things off after the deep bench players had been put in because the point spread was so big. But in the fourth quarter of Game 2, Duncan Robinson, who was miserable all year and who was miserable in Game 1 when he came in for the injured Tyler Hero in that first-round matchup, and he was miserable the first three quarters of Game 2, he started drilling threes left and right. And I remember thinking in that moment, even though the Bucs were going to win, even though it got a little tense at the end, the Bucs are going to win, and I felt at the time that they had gotten themselves back on track. Stupid John, you, you ignorant slut, John. But I remember thinking in that fourth quarter, as Robinson was knocking down uncontested threes, basically, against the Bucks' second and third stringers, I thought, boy, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I like letting a guy who historically has been a good shooter, but he's been in the dumps all year, and he's been in the dumps in a, you know, whatever, game and a half at that point, and they need him because Tyler Hero's out, and we thought he was the logical replacement. When he was drilling those threes in the fourth quarter, I thought, that's probably not good. You do not want him. You don't want a shooter to get his confidence back, and he, I think he got his confidence back in game two of that series, and it has not abated since. And he was the biggest part of that fourth quarter rally at the beginning of it, cutting the basket, knocking down threes, and the Heat make all the smart plays. They stay composed, and their opponents so far all throughout the playoffs when they Heat make that run don't have a counterpunch, and they tighten up, and they miss shots and make mistakes and turn the ball over and take ill-advised threes and make bad decisions. It's so odd what we're seeing happen, but it has happened now almost an entire playoff run. That series now tied at one as they head to Miami for Game 3, and stupid me with worms for brains, 
I still think the Heat or the Nuggets are going to win this in five, but I'm sure something's going to happen during the course of this stop in Miami where the Miami Heat will do what they've done all playoffs. I mean, are they actually going to win the title? I don't think I'll believe it even if it happens. But the Vegas component of it actually gives me some measure of solace. It gives me a, a feeling of, okay, well, I'll leave. If they still don't believe in the Heat, if the people that set the spreads that trap gamblers into bad lines all the time, if they don't even believe in the Heat, then I guess I don't feel as bad about what has happened in my takes on the Heat during the entirety of this run. It's remarkable what they've been able to do. But Game 3 coming up on Wednesday. That'll do it for us here on your Monday. We will get back after it on Friday. We'll be recapping the rest of the Brewer Week. Of course, tonight, one last road game and then a three-game set against one of the best teams in baseball. Will they be there at the end? I don't know, but right now they are, the Baltimore Orioles. And we'll get you set for the Oakland series on Friday. We'll talk about Game 3, Heat and Nuggets on Wednesday, and any other movement or Packer OTAs. We'll break that down as well. We'll chat with you then. Have a good work week. <laughs> 